created live on Fireside. Welcome. I'm Lorley Binstock, and this is a Trauma Survivor Thrivers podcast. Thank you so much for joining me live on Fireside Chat, where you can be a part of the conversation as my virtual audience. I'm Loralee Binstock, your host. Everyone has an opportunity to ask me or our guests questions by requesting to hop on stage or sending a message in the chat box. I will try to get you, but I do ask that everyone be respectful. Um, our guest today is Reverend Kenneth Nixon, Jr., He is the author of Born Into Crisis, a memoir about his experience growing up with a mentally ill mother. Kenneth, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thank you. How about yourself? Pretty good. Pretty good. You know, you you challenged me because I don't have an Apple device, so I had to go out and buy one for the first time. Stop. Did you really? (laughs) Oh, my goodness. What do you think of it? (laughs) Ah, uh, I have a lot of learning to do. <laughs> oh my goodness. Well, I'm so grateful for you. I mean, maybe you could return it. I don't know if you, if you're like, oh, this is, you know, you get so used to one thing after a while, but I do appreciate your your w- willingness to come on the show um because you have a lot to say and I want to hear all about it. Your book, Born into Crisis. Wow. Incredible. So I, I want you to be able to, you know, for our guests who haven't read the book, can you talk a little bit about your childhood? Yes. So my childhood, uh, if we start right at the title of the book, right, Born Into Crisis, uh, it, when I was born, my mother who suffered from severe mental illness, uh, all of her her life, uh, I was literally born into crisis from the standpoint she was in the middle of um, uh, psychosis at the moment of my birth, um, in which uh, while I was lying on the floor, I was suffering from withdrawals from a medication called Thorazine, which is an antipsychotic medication that she used to treat those who uh, then suffered from paranoid schizophrenia or mm. other manic depressive disorders and stuff of that nature. And it was only um, by grace that my father, who was getting off of work, got there in time to get me to the hospital. So I quite literally was born into crisis. Um, but that is the beginning stage of a life and a childhood in which I had to deal with um, trauma, um, PTSD, anxiety, and various things of growing up with a mother with severe mental illness. You know, that's really tough. You know, you, you talk about, you know, postpartum psychosis. I mean, I, I, it sounds like she, she's dealt with these issues, but you know, after, you know, childbirth, postpartum psychosis is very real. Um, and, yes. and it's, it's so, such a, you know, it's such an issue that people are like, yeah, it doesn't really affect that many people. It affects enough people. I feel like for, for, someone to raise awareness about it you know it's it it is very much a problem you hear all these stories about these mothers 
who've murdered their children or who've mm. attempted to murder their children. And, you know, this, this, this is a problem, right? So I, I'm curious for you, you know, for someone who's dealt with so much trauma, especially at an early age, how were you able to get out of that? How are you able to break these generational cycles of, of trauma? Mm. Yeah, so what I want to do first, uh, you hit um, a good point that I wanted to emphasize um, uh, about not only prenatal care, but postnatal care. Um, mm -hmm. My mother, because uh, I have older siblings, she suffered a severe bout of postpartum depression with my oldest brother, um, Kevin, uh, in the 70s. And that was not, she did not have effective prenatal care and postnatal care. Um, and that can lead to um, devastating consequences as well in mm -hmm. terms of impacts to mental health if there's not effective care for, for mothers both pre and post. Uh, and particularly in the 60s and 70s, um, it, it was really lacking for women of color. Um, it's improved, but there's still gaps in it. But prenatal and postnatal care is critical too uh, uh, for, for mothers to have. But Breaking generational cycles, I think it's uh, it's always a work in progress. Uh, for me, um, it began with this deep sense of curiosity as I was growing up to try to understand how my life could turn out uh, in such a way, right, as those stages of uh, emotions that you go through from anger to, to grief, to resentment, to bitterness, uh, to sadness, uh, and really understanding um, not only the systems and the environment that, that I grew up in, um, but understanding what was within my control um, to begin to shift the paradigm, not only in my life, but to also make sure that I don't carry some of those things uh, into my household as I'm raising my children. Uh, mm. And I took that personally because uh, I had a, a deep sense that um, I wanted to do things differently for my children so they can have a healthier path um, to to life than I did. Mm, yes. That, you know, for me, uh, you know, I'm a childhood sexual abuse survivor. You know, I realized my my father um, was also sexually abused as a child. I didn't know that until I was much older. For me, it was really hard, even though I, it's like I knew, uh, you know, my they also had very erratic behaviors, um, very just very difficult to be around. Um, and, you know, the, a lot of yelling, a lot of just erratic behavior behaviors and you know even though i'm like ah, i don't want to be i don't want to be anything like my parents you know there were times where i'd get overwhelmed and i'd get you know there's just moments with my kids that i was just yelling and this was before i i got went to residential treatment i um and i was very fortunate that i was able to do that but before that you know i didn't realize like i'm like oh my god my children are just behaving this way because and it, it, it took a long time for me to say, oh, my goodness, I'm I'm behaving the way my parents were behaving. And now my children are going to pick up on this. Um, what was it for you where you were like, mm, 
things need to change? Or was this before children? And did you have a support system? Because I feel like that's extremely important mm -hmm. too. So I, I would say it's some of both. Um, in terms of a support system, I, I would say I didn't have a big, strong support system. But what I did have um, was my, my grandmother. Um, oh, um, she passed away in 2006. Mm -hmm. uh, and my father. Um, but central to for me was my faith. Um, uh, and I'm only speaking for myself, but it was one of those things that I can fully lean on and trust to help me not only um, center myself, find a sense of peace, um, but it was something that was dependable uh, and that was consistent in my life um, that allowed me to have a, a sense of fulfillment. Um, mm. But as I got older, uh, and particularly into adulthood, um, I began focusing on how do I help others not deal with the same situations that I was doing, but also how do I do the things in terms of self-care therapy um, that I don't carry some of my traumas or inherited traumas uh, into a household where I'm raising my sons. Uh, and I will give a good example uh, uh, in terms of that. Like I grew up where um, family wasn't very loving. There, was, there weren't those affirmations of, of I love you. I don't even think I remember my father ever saying that or mm -hmm. people around me there, there weren't hugs or being tucked in at night and things of, of that nature that seem normal to me, but they weren't, they aren't normal um, because humans thrive off of connection and being connected with one another. Yeah. Uh, and it's really focusing on the small things to make sure that my children understand that they are loved, that I, I tell them that dad loves them, that I tuck them in at night, that I hug them, that they actually see me crying. Uh, and one of the, the things that I wanted my sons to understand is that it's okay for boys who will eventually become men to cry mm -hmm. because crying is one of the ways in which your body releases anxiety, it releases stress, it releases uh, some of the things that if you bottle up, it can turn into uh, physical health challenges. So I wanted to create an environment in which I was acting out on my self-interest of creating a more fair and equitable society, particularly around mental health. But I was also living that out in a way I was raising my children so they can grow up in a healthy environment as much as possible. I still have things that I, I have to work on because it's a continuous work. Mm -hmm. Um but as much as possible, I'm very conscious of it. And I try to create an environment that is uh, 180 degrees different than the one I grew up in. Yeah, I feel like awareness is everything. When you're conscious about your behaviors, it's it's so much easier to make changes versus me <laughs> before before I actually was aware of my, who what I was doing. I was just going along thinking, why? Well, everyone's doing something wrong. <laughs> um, and that was really hard. That was really hard to, to, 
really fully be aware of my act, my behaviors and how it affected other people and actually be present in a mo in the moment versus you know for the longest time probably for 20 years 30 years i was disassociating um mm -hmm. and so that that was that was challenging um you know i want to talk about discrimination of mm -hmm. mental illness and it's really interesting i feel like this has been a whole thing for the month of May, you know, we're right into in mental health awareness month. And just a few weeks ago, I actually, um, someone contributed to my magazine. She was not, um, I guess when I promoted her piece, I got a lot of people reaching out saying, oh, this person's a liar. She's, you know, she, she did have a warrant out for her arrest and they did say like, oh, she's, she's, a, she's a compulsive liar. You can't have her on your show. Uh, you know, I can't believe you let her contribute to this magazine. She's a fraud. I don't believe she even experienced trauma. And my my reaction to that was all of this kind of proves she's experienced some sort of trauma, whether it's the trauma that she says she's experienced, she still experienced trauma. And I feel like I, I, I want you to kind of go into discrimination of mental illness and and in that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and in my book, I, I dedicate a chapter kind of to the, the point you're getting at right now. Uh, and I would couch this under a form of cognitive bias, uh, where individuals or, or, or groups of folks um, kind of project their own sense of right and wrong and their own feelings and their own perceptions on whether or not someone experienced something or not and, and to what degree. And it requires people to understand that someone's truth is someone's truth. Mm -hmm. And it may manifest or look differently than what you may want it to look like or what society says is normal. But if we start at the basis of letting everyone share their story and how they feel and how they perceive that they receive trauma and go at it from the side of love and deference, uh, I think we will get to a place where we begin to allow people to share the same space. Now, we do have to be grounded in a sense of, of facts and truth, um, but the way trauma works uh, is people have to be comfortable in the space to be able to share their truth in a way that feels real and natural to them. And sometimes people may not feel comfortable sharing their full truth in a way um, that we may all like because they feel they're going to be attacked or they're going to be put in a position where they are overexposed and don't want to be in a position where they're too vulnerable. Uh, so I would encourage people to really look at their own form of bias on their worldview on how they grew up and how they see things and understand every individual has their own set of experiences, uh, have their own set of understandings and have their own set of feelings. And even if that individual is saying something that you don't necessarily agree with or that you feel is fully forthright, uh, it is okay um, to let that individual 
just speak. You don't have to always point out the flaws of someone else. Um, sometimes just let them speak and move on. Yeah, that's a you know that's easier said than done, right? I feel, mm-hmm. I, I agree with you, right? I'm you know I've gotten to this point in my healing where I don't need to you know, provide input on how someone else should live or how they're living or, you know, how their trauma has affected them and how they should behave. Um, but it is, I feel like when I was reading the comments and, and it was on, it was, I think it was on my pa- Facebook page and people were just saying all of these different things about this person. And I guess, you know, from, from their perspective, I see, okay, they're probably, there's probably fear there that they could mm-hmm. be, you know, scammed by this person. Um, and I think, you know, and, you know, I wanted to give them some compassion as well, but it's, it's, it's so hard for people to, to really separate themselves from, Mm -hmm. you know, because there's a good chance that, you know, family members or people that were surrounding them felt like they need to put their, you know, have their input. And then that's kind of how we do Mm -hmm. things. Right. Yeah, and it also could be coming from a place of feeling that they have to protect their own um, mental health or exactly. the health yeah. of others who may may come to listen to the content. So it could be a protection mechanism. Uh, I, I would say one of the, the antidotes that we need to um, utilize more often uh, is connecting with one another in person. I know technology is... <laughs> It's done wonderful things for society and globally, but it's also disconnected us in a way uh, that we don't have enough real conversations with real people in person and connect in a way that uh, allows us to feel and um, be surrounded by the spirit of people. Um, So I think more of that needs to happen. But I, I truly, truly understand the sense of wanting to protect one's own space. Uh, and that could have been something that was being communicated through Facebook. You wrote Born Into Crisis. And I want to know, what was your intention? What did you hope to come out of this book? Mm-hmm. So my hope was to reach at least one individual. I, I wrote it with um, it impacting one person. If one person could read it and find their path to self-discovery, to healing, to getting a sense of agency and empowerment to act on their self-interest, then I would uh, consider it successful. So the way I wrote it um, was one, to try to... um, have people feel that they're having a conversation with me. So I broke it into two parts. One is my personal story. The second part is the call to action. Uh, And I wanted to be able to allow people some insight into my personal story, but I also wanted to give people the tools, the walkaways on what they could potentially do to take those concrete steps to affect not only change in their their local community and their homes as individuals, but as society as a whole um, around this critical issue of mental health. Mm. 
Yes. Our, our mental health, our, our health system in America is, is, you know, I have, I, I have words, but especially mm-hmm. when it, when it, when it comes to mental health, it's, it's almost non-existent. It feels like, you know, people to get the right care for, for a, a therapist, especially trauma therapists. I feel like everything's now out of, out of pocket. Insurance isn't covering um, a lot of it. What would you, what do you think we, needs to be done to really revolutionize our, mm-hmm. our mental health system, healthcare system? Because I feel like it is a very daunting task and a mm-hmm. lot of people don't want to touch it. Yes. So the mental, first of all, mental health, um, for those who are listening, mental health is health. One of the first things we have to do uh, is decriminalize mental health. And what do I mean by that? Uh, is we have to put in place the community-based system that was always supposed to go in place when uh, we did a mass deinstitutionalization push back um, in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, where these massive mental health institutions were shuttered and its place was supposed to be this community-based system that would holistically uh, treat individuals and get them on a path to healing and sustainability while they stayed in their communities. Well, that system never got put in place. Uh, And in that gap, you ended up with a system in which individuals who are dealing with uh, mental health, whether it's anxiety or it's a severe mental illness, they end up in one of two places, either in the local emergency room, which ERs are intended for physical emergencies, not mental health emergencies. Uh, and they end up in ERs not getting immediate treatment or they end up in local jails. Uh, and the fact is, is that the largest mental health treatment facilities in this country today still are local jails. Think about that for a second. The largest mental health treatment facilities in the United States right now are local jails. Uh, And we need to shift that dynamic to a more humane form of treatment that keeps people in their community, that does not criminalize mental illness, um, but gives people their best shot at having happy, thriving lives. So would that be all um, community organizations that what what would we be able to put in place? What is yeah? What would so we- some of the work that um, I am doing through the organization I'm affiliated with Voice, which uh, stands for Virginians Organized for Interfaith Community Engagement. Um, there's a three pronged stool to this process. Uh, some place to call. Uh, some place to go, uh, and the the treatment and the services that wrap around the individual um, that is getting treatment. So one of the key pieces uh, that was put in place um, that needs to be put in place um, nationally is the advent of the 988 hotline number, which allows individuals who uh, or their loved ones who are about to go into a mental health episode or in the middle of it to have an alternative to 911 
uh, to call 988 and be connected to someone that they can talk to um, that can help determine uh, what level of illness that they own and what type of treatment do they need, whether it's just to speak with someone or that they actually need to speak to a clinical professional. So that's, that's the first piece, really implementing and socializing uh, the 988 hotline number for individuals to utilize. The second piece is the infrastructure. So in Virginia, um, we're working really hard and we've had some successes in getting funding to build out what are called uh, crisis receiving centers. Uh, these are brick and mortar facilities that have two components. One is uh, a 23-hour um, piece where individuals uh, in the community, uh, law enforcement can do uh, drop-offs instead of taking people to um, local jails. Uh, people can just walk in where someone is experiencing um, anxiety or they, they feel that they need to talk to someone and they can walk right off the street and um, speak get immediate treatment and speak with a professional. And they may need two hours, they may need four, um, but they may need up to 23 hours. The whole goal is to make mental health services as accessible as possible. The second component to that crisis receiving center uh, is called uh, a short stay, a crisis stabilization unit. Uh, this is for individuals, whether they come through drop off from law enforcement or a family member or they walk in themselves, if it's determined that they need more in intensive inpatient treatment for a short stay, um, there's another component for a three to five day short stay for that individual to get intensive inpatient treatment. Um, but when they depart, they don't just depart um, without any tools or any resources. They depart with wraparound services that allows them to access continuous ongoing uh, care and treatment. Uh, so in Virginia, um, we uh, have a victory in which uh, Prince William County in Virginia, which is in Northern Virginia, um, has done the groundbreaking and should have a full crisis receiving center online by spring of next year. I know in Loudoun County where um, that's also in Northern Virginia, where They've uh, their local government has approved the funding to build their own full crisis receiving center. And in Fairfax County, the most populous uh, jurisdiction in Virginia, um, they're going to be putting up funding to finish out a full crisis receiving center as well. Uh, so one of the things we need to do is to make sure that not only are we breaking down the stigma, but we're coming together to create what I call co a collective power. Uh, to compel our local governments to begin building out that community-based mental health system that was promised to us over 40 years ago. Wow. Well, this is amazing. This is in Virginia. What about countrywide? Is this, mm -hmm. is, do they, do each individual state, does, does, do they have similar goals to create this type of space? Yeah. So I could speak. So, the model that Virginia is following is based off of the federal uh, government's guidelines uh, and under the guise of a, a crisis now model, which was pioneered in Arizona, um, which we're trying to build our system based off of that crisis now model. So there are pockets in the country in Arizona. I know there is 
a facility in San Antonio, Texas. Uh, there's also a facility uh, in Ohio, and there's a good, robust program in Florida, I believe. Um, so there are pockets where this is taking hold and taking shape uh, in the country, but it is not uniform throughout the country. And if we're going to get at true systematic transformation, we have to make a commitment at the state level and the local level um, across the country to really commit to um, destigmatizing and decriminalizing mental health. And that is making a commitment to the crisis now model of care, which will help us build out nationwide a community-based system of treatment so we get people to treatment and not incarceration. So to answer your question, and it is in other pockets of the country, but there is no uniformity um, across the country to implement this model. Got it. Do you believe that law enforcement is equipped to handle people who are dealing with a mental health crisis? Yes and no. I say yes from the standpoint, if if law enforcement agencies, and I know in Virginia, um, a lot of our law enforcement agencies send uh, a lot of their police officers through crisis intervention training, um, CIT, um, and there's different levels of CIT training uh, from the introductory level all the way up to more advanced methods to equip law enforcement to be able to identify when they're dealing with the individual who's in a mental or in the middle of a mental health crisis. Um, but writ large, law enforcement is not equipped um, to deal with those who are in the middle of a mental health crisis. And it can lead to often tragic outcomes um, when you're putting law enforcement in a position where they have to make snap decisions. Mm -hmm. And I can tell you, um, each law enforcement officer or agency that uh, I've encountered in Virginia will um, uh, will be the first to stand up and say they are for putting these crisis receiving centers in place because they do not want to be involved in these type of situations. They understand completely that people who are in a mental health crisis need to see mental health professionals. So. And, and, and quite frankly, you're talking about law enforcement officers who have um, who are veterans, who have been in wars, who have their own traumas. Mm -hmm. uh, and we're oftentimes sending veterans uh, sometimes into situations where we can potentially trigger their mental health. Uh, so it's incumbent upon us to uh, work with law enforcement uh, as well as like we are doing in Virginia to put in place a system that alleviates this unfunded mandate on law enforcement. Wow. Well, I, I'm, thank you so much for all of the information that you've provided and everything that you're doing. You've taken your story um, and found purpose and really are pushing for action and advocacy and, and, and healthcare and focused on mental health. And um, it's so admirable. And I am. Um, thank you so much for all that you do. Is there anything that you would like to add? What I would like to 
um, leave your audience uh, and everyone with is that um, none of us controls how we came into this world or the beginning, but we do have a say in the conclusion. And whatever way feels comfortable for you, whatever way that you feel led or inspired, if we're going to get at truly shifting the paradigm on mental health, it requires all of us, not just those who are directly impacted, but those who have loved ones who are impacted, those who know of someone who are impacted. We are in Mental Health Awareness Month, but when Mental Health Awareness Month ends at the beginning of June, those same challenges are still there. Those causes are still there. The people that need our support and our encouragement and our effort to get them on a path of humane treatment is going to still be there. And however you feel led, whether it's researching, whether it is direct action to, to get the funding or holding seminars to break down stigma, we all owe it to future generations to do something about it now. Thank you. Very well said. I appreciate you again for coming on and, and sharing your story and your input in, into the crisis that we are all living in right now. So thank you. so. Thank much. you again. And I appreciate the work and the advocacy that you're, you're doing. Uh, and, and I also appreciate the personality that you put into it. Uh, I've, I've, looked at your social media some as preparing for this and it uh, um, that by itself can be an encouraging method to help someone uh, find their way to not only dealing with their own personal challenges, but having a sense, hey, I can have a voice too in a way that's comfortable to me. So thank you for your work as well. Oh, thank you. That, that means a lot. That means a lot. You know, I, want to do what I can, you know, find my purpose, right? <laughs> well, thank Bless you again. You. That was Reverend Kenneth Nixon, Jr., author of the memoir, Born into Crisis. For more information on Kenneth and his book, click on that scrolling fortune cookie right there on your screen. Also, May's issue of Authentic Insider is out. Kenneth so graciously contributed to May's issue. Check out Authentic Insider at TraumaSurvivorThriver.com. That's TraumaSurvivorThriver.com. If you haven't already, please subscribe to my email list to get Authentic Insider magazine in your inbox monthly. We are taking a break next week, but we will be back in June for our last two episodes of season four. That'll be my 100th episode. So um, I hope you join us. Join me live when I speak with Jessica Lee DePatty, filmmaker of the documentary Dark Night of Our Soul about post-traumatic growth. You've been listening to a Trauma Survivor Thrivers podcast on Fireside. I'm Lorelei Binstock. Again, thank you for being a part of the conversation. Take care.